Um, good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, I have, my name is Tracy Hoover. I'm happy to be here this morning. Um, I want to open uh, with a word of prayer uh, from Psalm 16. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. As we enter into today's uh, thoughts on Joseph, and um, I just want us to remember what day it is um, as, as we uh, think about Monday Thursday, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But as we begin today, I just first want to acknowledge um, the story of Judah and Tamar uh, that we see in chapter 38. Um, I will let you hear from Jen Wilkins so much more about the story, as always. She does a wonderful job. But I just, so I did, that's not what I'm going to talk about much this morning, but I want to emphasize just personally what has stood out with me um, in all of the shocking stories, honestly, that we've read of different women in Genesis. Beginning, honestly, with the daughters of Lot, Sarah, Hagar, Leah, Dina, and then this week, Tamar. What I am struck by is how prominent women are in this book of the Pentateuch. These stories of women and these stories of the cruelty and honestly the harshness of their lives matter. God wanted these stories told. As the people entered into the promised land, they carried with them not just the story. I mean, if you think about it, step back and think about how Moses is spirit-inspired composing this book. So there's a spirit-inspired composition of this book before the um, Israelites enter into the promised land. And God told Moses to write down all of this. He wanted these stories told so that as the people entered into the promised land, they carried with them not just the stories of their patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the stories of the women whose lives had been shaped, marred, by the mistakes of their fathers. And as women, we should take note of this. God sees these women, and their stories matter. This week, in this bizarre story of a rejected and abandoned daughter-in-law, we get a glimpse of Jesus. Tamar, a Canaanite woman, whom Judah, and we're going to see Judah transform in these last chapters, who Judah recognizes at the end of chapter 38, he recognizes her as righteous. She is given a role in the life of Jesus. We see her in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel. The gospel that was written with the Jewish people most in mind. Tamar is named. She is named in Genesis and her story is told. And she is in the line of Christ. So that's all I wanted to say. Because I just feel like I just... I'm struck at how the women are as prominent in Genesis as they are in Luke. I mean, the stories of these women were stories that God wanted to be told. And so I think that's something that we remember. We remember the story of Hagar when God sees her 
God sees these women. Um, so now, a question for you. Uh, what is the farthest away that you have ever been from friends and family, from people and places that you love? Take a moment to try to remember a time when you felt truly alone and distanced from all that you know and love. I have one such memory. It was the fall of 2012. My husband and I had spent a short week in Kampala, Uganda, meeting our new daughter, Diane. In the brief time that we were there, along with the awkwardly joyful process of getting to know our nine-year-old daughter, we had gotten to know the myriad of people who had also been a part of her life for her first nine years. Once we had finished up the legal proceedings with the court, where we were named her official legal guardians, the next step was for her Ugandan social worker to procure her passport so that she could travel back to the States. As the system worked, we would return to the United States, leaving Diane where she was in the children's home she had spent her early years, while the slow process of passport application and reception unfolded. We had been told that that would most likely be four to six weeks. Just hours before Don's and my departure, we received some game-changing news that made it clear that we could not leave Diane in the children's home. But, as her legal guardians, we would need to take custody of her immediately and reside with her in Kampala while the passport application was processed. Did I say game-changing? <laughs> this certainly was. We had left four of our teenage children at home with my 23-year-old niece. Uh, Dawn had a business to run. Only one of us could stay. I don't think I will ever forget those tearful moments when we realized what was about to unfold. We had 18 hours to move me from Emmanuel Katangale's beautiful country home in Entebbe into a one-bedroom apartment in downtown Kampala to unexpectedly retrieve our daughter and settle me and her in for an unknown period of time and send on off to the airport. Terrifying. That might be a word you could use. Um, once Don had hopped in the car and rushed off to the airport, I was left in a small apartment in an East African city of 1.5 million people with a frightened nine-year-old girl who spoke very little English and honestly did not like me at all. We were there for four weeks. This was by far the farthest away that I had ever been, and it was the farthest away I'd ever been and been alone. And guess what? The Wi-Fi reception was very spotty, and cell phone communication was unreliable. So alone, yes. Completely alone, it sure felt like it. Have you ever had an experience like this, where you've been so far away from something or someone? 
And if so, do you remember the feelings that you had? Because even as I retell this story, I feel my heart begin to race. My stomach feel, fill, not with the excited flutter of butterflies, but the panicked flapping of bats. Um, or maybe your experience of being alone and far from what you know and love has not been because of a physical distance, but maybe it's been from an emotional separation brought on by illness or emotional trauma, broken relationship, or simply living somewhere where you felt you were unknown and invisible. The question is, when have you been laid low? We can only imagine, then, how the main character of our passage this week and of the rest of the book of Genesis we get to be with uh, Joseph. We can only imagine how he felt as he experienced, first, the traumatic moments of sitting in a dried-out cistern, being hoisted out into the hot desert sun, and then roughly bound with his brothers watching. Were they laughing? Were they grimacing? And he was dragged off as a slave for auction. Landing in a foreign country where he did not know the language, sold in an auction block, and taken to serve in a household of wealth like he had probably never seen before, but utterly and completely alone. The likelihood that he would ever see his family, maybe his brothers hated him, but his father and mother who loved him so much, the likelihood again was next to nothing. But then, Genesis 39-2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And we see him rise to responsibility and leadership in the household of Potiphar. And just as the story seems to be turning out for Joseph, the game changes again. Potiphar's wife's trickery and rage land Joseph in a prison cell. And yet again, in verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Was Joseph released from the prison cell? Or was his life in prison easy? I think not, given what we read in verse 22. It says, the, G the chief jailer committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. So lest we think Joseph was in a cushy position in the prison, he, he maybe had freedom of movement, but it seems that he was serving as the one who served all of the prisoners. We can imagine that perhaps he did experience freedom of movement, um, but because of the first six verses of chapter 40, and, and we, we know that because of the first six verses of chapter 40, we see him caring for two specific prisoners and noticing one morning that they had had particularly rough nights. Lest we think his circumstances maybe weren't so bad, I also would say pay attention to what he says in verse 15 when he speaks to Pharaoh's cupbearer before he leaves and he says, For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. He obviously is not in a good place when he's there in the prison. 
And then later, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And two full years passed. What must those two full years have felt like? Not to mention the many that had come before. We know, and yet what is, what is it that these chapters tell us? And not just these chapters, but the rest of Genesis. So happy, aren't we, to be at Joseph after what we've gone through. Indeed, by the time we reach the end of chapter 41, and we've witnessed Joseph's remarkable rise to power so that he alone was second only to Pharaoh, it almost seems, when you get to the end of chapter 41, that, Joseph, that Moses forgot to add those four words. Truly, as, Ju as Joseph takes the helm of Egypt, we see that God was with him. And in just four chapters, we will hear Joseph declare to his brothers, it was not God who sent me here. It was not you who sent me here, but God. And again, in the final chapter of Genesis, Joseph can say to his brothers, even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people. Joseph introduces us to the great truth that Paul declares so eloquently in the last verses of Romans chapter 8. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And if you remember Mary Banks' words to us almost two years ago when we looked at chapter 8 for an entire semester, the scripture does not say that all things are good. Only in the hands of the Father can things that are bad be made good. And that is redemption. But I'm getting ahead of today's story. That's for those fortunate folks who get to look at those passages. Um, the theme is the same here. It's the same as it was for Abraham, the same as it was for Isaac, and the same as it was for Jacob. God is with Joseph. But there is some part of this story that is so beautiful because for the first time in a long time, maybe since Abraham, we see a man who is with God. Joseph seems to understand the goodness of God in a way that undergirds his behavior. With each interpretation of dreams, he acknowledges that it is God alone who is able to interpret. When, when tempted by Potiphar's wife, it is against God that he does not want to sin. And think about that for a moment with the dream interpretation. Would you not be tempted... I think of this. Would you not be tempted, given everything that has happened, to claim a piece of glory for yourself? If Joseph seemed at all prideful in his youth, by, the, by his adulthood we see a deep sense of character and faithfulness to God. Joseph humbly acknowledges the God that he serves. Given that all of his adult life is spent in a foreign land that worshipped foreign gods, the faithfulness of Joseph to the one true God is worth emphasizing. In Joseph's life, we finally see someone who truly walks faithfully with his God. Joseph is, in fact, a precursor, a picture of Christ. He is a predictor of what is to come. He is the first character we encounter in Genesis who, due to the circumstances of his life, the constant presence of God in it and his acknowledgement and submission to God's work bears the image of Jesus 
like no other. And given all that has come before, and given all that has come before, it seems really inexplicable, if not for these four words, God was with Joseph. So Christ is here in this story. Today is Maundy Thursday. And what do we remember this day and this night? Gethsemane. It is in this moment, this very day of Holy Week, that we remember our Lord's moment of utter separation and loneliness. In the garden, even with his closest friends nearby, Jesus is utterly and completely alone. And in the coming hours, he experiences a darkness that none of us have ever known. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cries out to the Father to deliver him from the agony and the desolation that is ahead. And yet, even in his humanity, he can ask that the he can ask the Father that his will be done. I'm going to read from Mark's Gospel. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Today, in this story, we remember the words of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I want to strongly encourage you, if you have not already, to listen to Jen's talk. For today's study. And if you don't have the bandwidth today, I really want to encourage you to do this today. If you don't have the bandwidth for the full 47 minutes, because it is 47 minutes, please, please listen to the last eight minutes. Because there she does this beautiful and complete job of enumerating all the ways that Joseph shows us Jesus. And it is Honestly, it is a beautiful Passion Week meditation. So please take time to listen to it. But for today, Monday, Thursday, let's be sure to sit a while in the knowledge 
that no matter how far away we have felt from friends, from family, from fellowship, from what we know and love, no matter how alone or disliked or hated we feel or how far and distant God may seem to be, Christ himself is there with us. I'm really going to encourage you sometime today, whether you do this before small group or if you want to do it during small group or at the end, to go into the stations of the cross. And as you approach the first station of the cross, Jesus in Gethsemane, we can remember that we have a Savior who took on our very nature. He made himself nothing. And he took on our loneliness and suffering that we might be exalted with him. I'm going to close with this prayer that I heard in my Lectio this morning. Jesus, in my own suffering this day, I take up your faith that with God, suffering, loneliness, isolation, and chaos never have the last word. Suffering is sufferable because I know that the great story and my story within it does not end in pain, but in joy. Not in isolation, but in communion. In Jesus' name, amen.